because it's pretty hard to stand out in front of a hostile crowd and sing, isn't it? I always felt really, especially the little skinny white guy that went out on the stage to sing some uh, Ray Charles song or something, you know, at Showtime at the Apollo. And that always gave him an especially big hand. And it occurred to me that in Christianity, we have some misconceptions. And uh, one of the misconceptions is that love is a feeling. Love is very much something more than a feeling. This really corresponds with faith as well. We talk about faith as a belief, and we know that faith is much, much more than a belief. It's a way of life. It's an action. It's a lot of things. So these two subjects can go kind of hand in hand. And if you haven't noticed, over the last several weeks, I've been kind of big on a, on a few principles. Uh, controlling your emotions, making them subject to the King of Kings, taking every thought that you have and measuring it against your knowledge of Jesus. Oh, we have a new baby Piro in here today. Hello, Chloe Ann. That's Chloe Ann Piro. Cap. <laughs> How about that? That's beautiful. So what I was saying was that there's been a theme here lately, and one of them is about controlling your emotions, controlling your thoughts, making your thoughts subject to your knowledge of Jesus. Does that y'all ring a bell with anybody that we've been covering that? We stopped the very last worship service that we were in and said, hey guys, you need to understand something about worship. It doesn't matter what you feel like when you walk in, whether you feel like jumping around, feel happy, feel sad, any of those things. Worship is something that you do outwardly and then the feelings come. Well, love is, is kind of that way. Uh, when you counsel with married couples, one of the things that happens is as time goes on, you start to have these things. The natural uh, exuberance that you feel in the beginning of a relationship starts to fade. And so a married couple will sit in front of you and they'll say, I just, I don't feel love for them anymore. I don't love them. We've changed. We've grown apart. All of these other things to make this sound better. And my response has always been, I really don't care whether you feel this or not. This is something that you need to do and the feelings will come. See, the Bible tells you to love your enemy. It doesn't matter whether you feel love towards your enemy or not. That's a command. Love your enemy. So, so what does it mean? Let's start with Galatians 5 and we'll go from there. Is that perplexing to you that I tell you it doesn't matter what you feel when we're talking about love? It's kind of perplexing to me. This is a hard, hard subject to preach on. I'm one of those people that needs somebody in my life like Jennifer who balances me out or Matthew in ministry. I don't always know what I feel. I know how I'm acting and I can look back and say, wow, I must have been depressed that day. But I don't wake up and think I feel this way so I will act a certain way. It's an advantage in some ways because... I want my actions to determine my feelings, not my feelings to determine my actions, which can be godly. It can be a disadvantage in other ways. I'm not always as in touch with that artistic side, you know? Let's talk about this in Galatians. In Galatians 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. What a profound statement. In Christ, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Now, 
when I preach on this, usually I would talk about faith has an expression. Faith must express itself in some way or it's not real faith. It's dead. And James teaches us that. But this morning what we want to talk about is the expression of faith is love. So how do I know whether Brad really loves chocolate or really loves Corvettes or really loves anything else? You know the scriptures that speak of nobody would know the thoughts of a man except the spirit within the man. I can't know what Brad feels a warm inclination towards except by his actions. But love is much more than just the way that Brad feels. His actions show things that his feelings may disregard. A good example would be when you ask somebody to list the priorities in their life. Say, hey, what is the most important thing in your life? What, what would most everybody put first? God. What would everybody put second? Family. Third. In South Louisiana or Texas, yeah, job or country, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, food, somewhere in there. But then when you think about where your time is spent, where your actions are spent, always that gets a little messed up. God's not usually at the top of that list. So you can look and see that your affections really do, your thoughts really do lie in some other places before God first. So nobody's ever done that? Yeah, I have all of the time. If the only thing that counts in Christ Jesus is your faith expressing itself through love, we need to talk about what love is and why. Have you ever been in a fight with a... No, nobody's ever fought with a spouse in here. Some other person, anybody in the kingdom, and have the thought, well, I'll start showing Matthew love when he loves me. Yeah, isn't that... I mean, I think that thought's hit all of us. I will do when they do first. Well, in Romans 5.8, we see a kind of love displayed by Jesus. Young turn to Romans 5.8. That really is a model for us. Starting in 5.6, actually. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a couple principles that we'll cover several times this morning. One of them is that love is an action. It's something that must be shown. A second one is, love never waits for somebody else to do something first. Love is always there, ready to be displayed even in the midst of somebody else's rebellion and disobedience. Luke 6 is going to make that very clear. But before we get to any of that, I would like to look at 1 John. So go to 1 John, Matthew, since you're typing in, it would be 1 John 3. It's hot in here, isn't it? How fleeting our feelings are. I did a Bible study one time on the heart. Actually, I've preached on it an awful lot. Where people in the Bible said, well, my heart was inclined. Or I felt this in my heart. Or I thought this in my heart. Heart can be a deceptive thing. And so can your feelings. It's why love has to be more than just a feeling. Because feelings are fleeting. Love is a way of life. Love is an action that you do. You know, there was a king uh, in Shechem whose son said that his heart caused him to love a young lady and he raped her. Now, that's repulsive, isn't it? We know that that's wrong. 
Uh, every civilized country in the world has laws against such things. But he said his heart felt inclined. Saul one time said, well, I saw that you weren't coming, Samuel, and I, I saw that the men were uh, scattering, and so I was fearful, and I felt compelled to do things. There's a problem with all of these feelings, though. These were feelings that they were not allowed to have because God had said, stay right there, don't do anything until Samuel gets there. When our feelings are contrary to God's word, we must cast aside our feelings. What is neat, though, is as you start to act in a certain way, the feelings do come. When you, I can't get this one couple in my mind, but when you counsel a couple who says that their love has grown cold, that they're growing apart, whatever, to do the things that they did in the beginning and they're obedient to that, you know what happens? Eventually, the little sparkly feelings come back again. How many people have walked in aisle and said that they will love Jesus all the days of their life, been baptized and all those things because there was a warm emotional feeling and then the next week never did another thing? But somebody else cannot have the fireworks go off, make that commitment, and have a long, sustained relationship to Jesus all of their life. Now, our faith does not depend upon feelings. Now, in First John 3... Okay, First John 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But when He appears, we know that we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. Now, we're going to skip over to verse 11, but before we do that, when you think about God and God's love for you, tell me what you envision. Do you envision an old man sitting on a throne that's smiling and has warm thoughts about you? Or do you envision an all-powerful deity that has done something on your behalf? See, when the Bible says God loves us, He explains it, and He explains it in terms of what God has Done. But when we talk about love, we talk about how we feel. There's a very famous exchange that I hope to get to today that had to do with Peter and Jesus. And we totally missed something. When Jesus asked Peter a question, do you love me? And Peter answers him. And he says, well, yeah, Lord. Oh, bye, (laughs) baby. When Jesus asks Peter a question and Peter answers, and they're both using the word love, they're talking about two totally different things. Have you ever noticed that when you're in conversation with people and you're talking about love, you can be talking about two different things? Talk to a 17-year-old boy about what love is. And then talk to a man who's in his 60s who's been married for 40 years about what love is. You have two very different concepts. It's important that we shape our concepts with what the Word of God says. Look at verse 11. By the way, God's love, it says, was lavished on you. The only time this word's used in, in the New Testament or Old, lavished. You know what it literally means? It means dumped upon. It's just like a, a river. It's being gushed upon you. Everything that God does is an expression of His love towards you to the point where 1 John 4, 8 tells you that God is love. Now, if love's an action, what does that say about God? God is an expression, an action of something that's good for you. That's, that's really what, it, what he is. All right, y'all in verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, 
who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. I read all of that to get to that last line. Let us not love with words. Let us not love with the tongue. Let us love with our actions and in truth. You know, if somebody says that they believe something, they say, I have faith. What does James say? Show me your faith by what you do. So why is it that when somebody says they love someone, we don't expect to see an expression of that love? What happens tomorrow all around the United States? What are people doing everywhere? Their flowers are going out everywhere. Chocolates are going out everywhere. Little nice sentimental cards are going out everywhere. And it's wonderful. I wish every day was like this. The problem is the very next day, you know, we're back to normal. The Bible teaches us a lifestyle of our faith causing us to express love towards one another. Now, on Valentine's Day, when you express love to somebody, how do you pick them? I mean, who's your Valentine? It's a spouse, it's a significant other, it's somebody that, a special person, usually. The Bible really lifts up an attribute of love and tells you to express this to your enemies, towards your neighbors, and who is my neighbor, Lord? Everybody that is around you, period. To treat everybody, every day, like it's Valentine's Day. So does that mean I have to walk around with candies all of the time? Does it mean I have to... I mean, Steve's going to think awful funny of me if I keep sending him roses every day, isn't he? But this is an attitude of the heart. And what we are is we're very selective with our love. We, we ask God to love us unconditionally because the Bible says. But our love has just a few conditions on it. And it's usually that you do exactly what I want you to do. I love you as long as you do all of these things. God's not like that at all. In fact, His love came to you while you were still an enemy of God. Before you ever gave your heart to Him, before you ever committed your life to Him, while you were still doing things that were in open rebellion to Him, He showed His love for us. He tells us to let our love be evident in actions and in truth. Turn with me to Luke 6. There's a problem with preaching on these kind of topics. As we talk about love as a feeling or as an action, you know, there's, there's a couple responses. One is, yeah, well, I, I know about that. Of course God is love. And it's not profound. And then the second one is that even if you do find it somewhat profound, everybody, everywhere is always talking about in some way God is love or they love... So it's an overly done topic. 
that make sense to you at all? And so it's hard to keep people's interest or attention at times. The problem with our knowledge about love is that it does not end up displayed in our actions about love. We're all-knowing but never doing. When's the last time you found a stranger? Somebody that you just ran into one day and did something loving for them. And yet that's the highest attribute that God uh, avails Himself to do. Look at Luke 6, verse 27. I tell you, I tell you, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those that hate you. Come on, who woke up this morning with that on their mind? Who is it out there that hates me? Let me find something that I can do good for them. But tomorrow's Valentine's Day. You will wake up and think about some special, significant other person in your life and think what good thing you can do for them, won't you? But what's the Bible tell you to do? But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, how many of you have heard that statement before? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's a secular elementary school right down the road that is not allowed to discuss Christianity, cannot even tell you who this quote came from, but on the wall of most of their classrooms says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and they call it the golden rule. Not a lack of knowing the golden rule, but when is the last time you saw... A, well, how about in your life? Let's take it off of you for a minute, the pressure off of you. When is the last time somebody you didn't know somebody that you had not built a relationship with, did something loving for you. And yet, how many Christians are there supposed to be in the world? See, the reason that the light is not shining as brightly as it did, for instance, in Jesus' life, is because we're not living as He lived. If we truly walk in the love of the Father, that light shines everywhere. People can't help but notice it. You know why? You stand out like, you know, you're looking at pine cone, pine cone, pine cone. Here's a strawberry. Which one's different? I mean, you stand out if you do things that are loving for people. Now, when I say love, though, remember, I'm not talking about a feeling. I don't mean that when you're in Starbucks that everybody that walks through the door, you run up and give them a great big kiss and a hug and ask them to dinner. But I do mean that your actions towards them can be loving. You know, chivalry was based on that. There was a time period when you would open people's doors just as something that you wanted to do that was loving, that was kind. That when a lady walked in the room, you would stand. When somebody older than you, you would address them with authority or with respect for their authority just as they came from age. When you'd remove a hat in the presence of someone else. These things have all faded right out of our society. And I'm not asking to place rules on us. That's not love either. But it is a lifestyle. Listen to what he says. If you love them, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? When you think of the people that you love in your life, you think of people that are very close to you, don't you? You might love me. I know you do. You might love your spouse. You might love your dogs. You might love some of your co-workers. 
Listen to what this says. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? In other words, when you stand before Jesus, there are no special rewards for loving the people that loved you. Now, my wife's sorely disappointed to hear this because she thinks that loving me is a very difficult task. <laughs> you know, Have you never told some spouse, you know, Lord, you're going to have a special reward in heaven for what you have to put up with? <laughs> well, that's, that's true in my house. <laughs> but the truth is, the Bible says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Now, we're, we're preaching a message of reconciliation for the world, that Jesus is reconciling the world to himself, and that he's using us to do that. Reconciliation in its core is about pluses and minuses. You reconcile a checkbook by taking credits and debits and reconciling them against each other. And we're trusting that Jesus is going to outweigh all of our debits with his plus. But here is a, here's an opportunity for you to do something that helps that process. It says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? In other words, in the reconciliation process, if you're just loving the people that love you, it's not a plus in your column. But what would be? Loving people that aren't showing love towards you. That one guy on the job that hates you and seems to make it his goal in life for your life to become difficult. Well, it'd be like pouring hot coals on his head too. There's all kind of benefits to loving people. Remember, love's not a feeling. I remember a woman named Corey Tin Boom. Everybody know who she is? This woman went through the Holocaust and uh, she was a Christian Jewish woman. So she really had it bad. She had it bad from a couple sides of the fence. One is, Jewish people were not particularly thrilled with her because she had accepted a Messiah that they didn't. That made her uh, an outsider. Another is, she was a Jew and she was in uh, the Holocaust camps. So she really didn't have it good from captors or from the other captives. She persisted. She stuck with her faith. She excelled in love and in service and one day became a preacher. And this is in Nazi Germany after the Holocaust, after the Nazis have fallen from power. She's preaching about love and forgiveness. All right? Now, I know I'm a preacher. I can preach on all kinds of things. It does not at all mean that I have come close to mastering them in my life. Sometimes you preach on the very things that you're struggling with the, the most. I mean, that's sometimes how I pick the topics. I can tell on myself that way. So she's preaching about love and forgiveness and having fantastic meetings. And wouldn't you think that that would be something that would be needed in Germany after World War II? The guilt of all of the death and all upon these people. Something unusual happened. And I only heard about this because on a radio program they asked this woman, at what time did you feel closest to God in your life? You know, she had a very long ministry. I can't remember how long ago she went to be home with the Lord, but or she must have been 90 years old. They asked her, at what point did you feel closest to God in your ministry? She said, I was preaching after the war in Germany, and I was preaching about God's love and God's forgiveness. She said, and as I gave the altar call, I saw a man walk down the aisle, and immediately as he stepped out in my thoughts, I went back to my 16-year-old sister's naked frame in front of me in line and that I could see her ribs through her skin and that there was a man jeering and pointing at her that had been abusing us and this was the man. She said, before I knew it, he was standing in front of me, looking me in the eye and said, Fraulein, I know that God forgives me, but I need to know 
that you love, that you forgive me. She said the very first thought in her was, I can't. No way. Not going to happen. And as she thought that, out of her mouth came, I forgive you. She said at that moment, she felt closer to God than at any time in her life. I want to tell you something. The action came, and then the feeling came. It didn't happen the other way around. This guy didn't step out, and she thought, oh, well, a rapist and a murderer. I want to show him such love, especially since he's responsible for the death of most of my family. But instead, what happened was an action, and then love came. Now, I'm not telling you love for the man even. Whose esteem and whose affection did she have? She had God's. Now, that's an extreme example, but watch. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. If you want to walk in love, you need to walk in kindness and mercy, and not towards the people that are kind and merciful to you. That's a no-brainer. You don't get any bonus points for that. The bonus points come when you're kind and you're merciful and loving to people that aren't towards you. That's hard, isn't it? That's a hard word. You'd rather that I stand up here and preach about hell. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Like uh, in the Great Awakening, you know, that you're a spider dwindling on a web over a fiery pit of hell. That would be an easier message than telling you to love people that are mean to you, that are wicked to you. Oh, it's easy to hear. The test comes tomorrow when you go to work and you do it. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 is one of those verses that is quoted all over the Bible. So you could take this from almost any place. Mandy, you used to have this memorized, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commands I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The model for the kind of love that God wants to see expressed in us is three part. 6, 4, and 5, Matthew. It's three part. It comes from your heart. It comes from your soul. And it comes from your strength. What do you think those three things might be since you're a three-part being? Heart uh, in Greek is kardo, the center street in a town, the main drag where everybody hangs out. Heart in a human being, spoken of in this literary sense, is your spirit. It's the very center. It's who you are. What is soul? Soul is your mind, your will, your emotions. Then what do you think your strength is? It's your flesh. It's this body that you live in. So if you're going to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength, what he's saying is, in your innermost being, who you are, you need to possess thoughts about God. In your soulish realm, in your mind, your will, and your emotions, 
you need to make those things conform to who your heart has decided God is. What is strength then? Strength is the part that everybody sees. I can't see Brad's soul. I can't see Brad's spirit. I can see Brad's flesh, his strength. So when God tells you to love him with all of your strength, he's telling you to love him outwardly. Now, if you preach this to lost people, if you stand up and say, I want you to love people with your flesh, they have a whole different idea, right? Your love must be sincere, must be in actions and in truth. That would be an action that could express love, except it's not in, in truth. The love that comes from Christians is three-part. It starts in your very heart or your spirit. It's expressed through your soul and ultimately carried out by your flesh. That's one way to think about that. From here, turn to John 21 and we'll look at somebody who had a problem understanding this. Matt, if you can get the interlinear Bible on the screen. Uh, I don't know whether that will help people or be distracting, but that's really what I'm going to talk about. Peter was sifted as a man sifts wheat. Y'all remember Jesus said, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail but will return? You remember that? And Peter had this little episode where he denied Jesus and did it with some fisherman's language. Y'all remember? This guy loved the Lord, don't you believe? Lord, where would I go? You have the very words of life. Another time he said, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Peter had just followed Jesus for three and a half years, but he failed him. That ought not be all that far from your understanding or your experience. Each of us have done that. Isn't it? In John 21, we see uh, an episode where Jesus is reinstating Peter. Okay, This is John 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? What a question. Who are these? Could be. Could be. I mean, that's what I think it is. Do you really love me more than all these? Why might Jesus have said that to him? Come on, think, guys. Why might Jesus have said that to Peter? Huh? Peter had said... Even if everybody else deserts you, I won't desert you. Was it true? No. Peter had just learned a profound lesson. Peter understood that love was supposed to be displayed in actions, but he had learned a profound lesson. His actions didn't always portray what he was supposed to feel. See, the problem with teaching that love is an action and not as a feeling, does that mean that if David has a bad day and his actions don't portray love to Brad, that there is no love there? No. It really doesn't. The goal is that your actions carry out your feeling. But it doesn't always work that way. Have you ever read in 1 John and felt condemned that said if you sin, then you don't know God? And if you love, you don't know God? And then you sin and you thought, what does that mean? It's talking about a habitual lifestyle. Well, this is the same way. What you find yourself doing the most often determines what is in your heart not what you did on the one occasion. Peter's life for three and a half years, did the majority of it portray a love towards God? Yeah. This one incident did not. It's kind of like Thomas. Call him Doubting Thomas. Thomas had a lifetime of service for Jesus before and after that moment, but we characterize him by that one moment where he doubted. Not fair, huh? Because his actions showed he had a love for God. Watch this. Peter needs to be reinstated. He loved the Lord, but his actions failed him. 
says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Why go through this three times? There's a lot of reasons, but why go through this three times? And there's some subtle differences in it. Denied him three times, so Peter ought to be able to equate one with the other, right? There's another one, though. See, in the Greek, and I've often said, if you have to preach and make all of your points from the Greek, it's because you don't have a point. So I'm going to try not to bog you down in these words, okay? But in the Greek, there's two different words being exchanged here. It says, Simon, Simon, do you have a love for me that is like you would love the Father? A perfect, sincere love? The word's agape. That's what he's asking. Each time Peter responds with, I feel affection towards you. There's a real difference. One speaks of devotion and the other speaks of feeling. So Jesus asks him again, Hey, do you, uh, do you have the kind of love and devotion for me that you would have for the Father? Do you agape me? He says, Now I philo you. Yomo philo? Philadelphia, city of brotherly loves. Good way to think about it. It's the love that you would have for somebody else and affection, but not necessarily devotion. Jesus realizes that Peter's not getting what he's telling him. Okay, It's not that Peter's disagreeing with Jesus. He's not understanding what Jesus is getting at. So he puts it in terms that Peter could understand. He says, all right, Peter, look, I understand. We're going to talk about Philo here, affection. Watch how he changes his words here. Each time he's told him to feed his sheep. Again, Jesus said this, verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Each time he had told Peter to feed the sheep, a simple action, and that's one verb. This time, the verb that he uses is not feed my sheep, it's tend them, take care of the whole flock. In other words, Peter, what I'm trying to get you to understand is, yes, the affection is great, but it must be accompanied with an action. And he changed his words. Rather than sit there and debate with Peter about agape or philo, which is how preachers present this, and y'all, there's a bunch of them. There's not just two. Rather than debate, if I ask Stephen, Stephen, do you love me? Or do you have devotion for me like you would the Father? He says, well, I have affection to you. And I ask him again. And he says, well, you know, I have affection for you. So, all right, look, in your affection, will you take care of all of my sheep? Oh, well, yeah, Lord, you know I'll do that. Okay, well, if you love me more than everybody, then go ahead and feed my sheep. That's the discussion that is occurring. What Peter was missing from his affection is devotion in his actions. And you know what's amazing about that? It's what's missing from our affection. You find people all the time. Matthew, you remember that guy on the street in New Orleans? Keith? Matthew and I, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. We're standing in the corner of the French Quarter. And there's a guy there who's professing a love for Jesus. Big, muscular guy professing a love for Jesus, the problem is none of his life portrayed that affection towards Jesus. What he claimed to possess in here was not borne out in devotion. 
So if he had phileo love, he did not have agape love. The difference being one's expressed in devotion and the other's not. So we couldn't help it being true ministers of the gospel. You look at the gentleman and say, hey, you may think you possess love for God, but you know tree by its fruit and the fruit's not there. You do not love God. Well, this set off a big, long debate in which eventually one of his friends attacked us, which was interesting because for the first time in Keith's life, he got to do something that expressed devotion for God, not just affection. And he stopped the man from attacking us. So we were happy he understood the message. Okay, so with Jesus and Peter, what Jesus is trying to get Peter to understand without going into all of the Greek verbs here is there's a change that takes place. You have affection for me, that's great. I want you also to add to it devotion. Peter understood that, and once he did, Jesus begins to describe to him the kind of death he's going to die. Um, speaking of an ultimate act of devotion. From here, turn with me to Psalms 85. When you think of faith, sometimes you could think of a belief, but we know that it's an action. What about faithfulness? When you put that extra ending on it, are you thinking about a belief in faithfulness or an action? An action. Psalm 85. If somebody's expressing faithfulness, faithfulness is something that's born out, not something that's simply believed. Listen to what two things go together. This is Psalm 85, verse 10. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Love and faithfulness meet together. This is why Galatians says the only thing that, that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Those two things are supposed to meet in an expression of God. So when you say that you have faith but don't yet walk in love, there's a meeting that's missing in your life. That faith not meeting with love is not expressing God's love to other people. So the two work in tandem. In fact, turn to Proverbs. In Proverbs 16, verse 6, you find it said like this, Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. Love and faithfulness are what atones for sin. Those two have to be working together. And remember, we're not talking about a feeling. We're talking about an action. Being loving and being faithful are the same thing, and they atone for sin. What credit is a man if he loves those that love him? Remember Luke 6 said that? What credit is that to him? Love and faithfulness atone for sin. What credit is it to a man if he loves only those that love him, don't even the wicked do that? So we need to make a practice in our life of loving people outside of the church. That's, number one, how the church grows. Number two, it's how God expresses his love towards people. You know, in the commands, in Proverbs, we're going to turn to Proverbs 17, in the commands, the word tells children to do what to their parents? Honor their father and mother. Why does the, the commandment not get issued to a, a parent? Why, did, why, does, why does one of the commandments not say, Diana, Harold, Bobby, whoever we're speaking to, love your children? Why would that be? In nature and in God's economy, 
love naturally flows downhill. It naturally does. Uh, you don't have to teach Cassidy to love Chloe. There's a natural affection that goes from parents to children. Now, it can get distorted, all kind of, but it's naturally there. You know what's not naturally there? Children's love to the parents. That has to be earned. That has to be proven out. That has to be done from years of interaction and actions. And you would like it not to be that way, but your experience will tell you that's true. God commands the children to honor their parents because the parents naturally show love. Now, why is that true? The Father, He naturally shows love to us. It flows that way. But we have to be taught to show love back to Him. And you know how He told us to do it? By standing in His stead and loving everyone else. We don't think of our love for the lost guy at work as love for the Father, but that's how the Bible describes it. I'm not a fan of Mother Teresa, never have been. But something that she said that I thought was profound, I think every Protestant everywhere ought to take note of, ought to listen to. She said, hey, you want to see Jesus? To a reporter. He said, yeah, yeah, I want to see Jesus. Out in the streets of Kolkata, she went and fed somebody that was hungry. She said, that's Jesus. She understood something that most Protestant churches never touch. The church she's a part of, I don't believe, touches. I don't think they understand it at all. She understood that. You are showing love for God when you show love for your fellow man. And the Bible teaches us that. You're in Proverbs 17. We're going to close here soon. 17 verse 9. He who covers over an offense promotes love, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Covers over an offense promotes love. If love's something that's supposed to accompany our faithfulness, that causes us to meet with God, that atones for sin, we want to do whatever we can to promote it, don't we? Love covers over an offense. What do we tend to do with our offenses? You store them. You gunny sack them. You tuck them away for a later argument so that you'll win it. You put it aside so that you can be right rather than reconciled. You, you tuck it away so if ever the moment arises where David and I have a problem, I can say, you remember when you... Love covers over an offense. We're just talking about some practical ways to show love now. Look at John 14. Actually, we'll close with John 14. Look at Ephesians. Ephesians 3. Look at what Paul's hope, his prayer for the church is. Everybody loves St. Paul? Yes. Right? Think Paul's all right guy? Why do you love Paul? He never gave up. He never gave up. He was pressed, he was crushed. But never abandoned. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was all of those things. But his love for God and his love for man compelled him to never give up. So you feel love and affection towards him, right? Look at what his hope for you is. This is uh, Ephesians 3. It's on page 1300, verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints. Why? To grasp how wide, how long, and how high and deep is the love of Christ 
and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. By having a foundation of love in your life, by grasping how big God's love was to you and your responsibility to express that to mankind, you are filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Think about that example with Corey Timbone. Do you think that she understood how high, wide, long, deep, whatever dimension you can ascribe to it, God's love was to be able to forgive that man that had done those things to her? She said that was the moment she felt the closest to God in life. Why do you think that is? It's the moment she was acting most like God. You know, I've preached a lot about you being ambassadors for Jesus, about you taking a message out. The best message you could take is if you never have the opportunity to speak, but you're loving people that don't deserve it. We need to learn this phrase, and I'll preach on this another time. But you don't give people what they deserve because God didn't give you what you deserve. You give them what they need. And if people didn't need anything else, they need somebody to show them love. You guys have realized that God has shown you love. But when I asked you earlier, how many times in your life has somebody you never met, somebody that had no attachment to you, done something that was truly loving to you, you all struggled for an example. We, don't want, we want to change that. <laughs> you know? The movie Pay It Forward had a really great theme for that reason. You know? The idea that there would be this force on earth working on behalf of God going out doing kind things for people so that they would have a connection with God and then in turn go do the same thing is not a new one. You know, John stood up before the church and said, Brothers, I don't have a, a new command for you, but an old one. You heard from the beginning. Love one another. And in all of our theology, in all of our understanding, we miss that. We're so quick, I am so quick to cast that aside for hate. Islamic guy walked in the Starbucks this morning. Love was not my first thought, you know. I looked at every reason he was different. I associated him with everything that was bad. And had I had the opportunity to have to speak with him further, you know, I might not have said loving things. We have a nature that pulls us a different way. The Father doesn't have that problem. His love comes to us and we learn to express it to others. But we have to be willing to do that. And it's got to be an action Turn to Romans. Two scriptures and we're done. Uh, You're going to be in Romans 8. Hope y'all are quiet, not because you've passed out or are dead out there, but you're thinking, you're in deep contemplation, deep thought. Romans 8.28 And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. How do we know if you love God? John says you walk as He walked. I'm telling you today that the cliff notes are you express His love towards mankind. And not those that love you. You don't get any credit for that. Only those that don't love you. So if you want God to work according to His purpose in your life, what do you need to do? Show love for mankind. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. 
It's talking about Israel and we just don't have time to teach on it. But watch what he goes on to say. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Is it God who ju- it is God who justifies? Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and who is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What he's describing is, is there a circumstance in the world that should separate you from God's love? That's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? Is there anything on earth that can pull you away from God's love? But we let everything on earth pull us away from loving one another, don't we? You remember, God's love to us is unconditional. Our love is few conditions. As long as you do what I want you to do. As long as you don't do anything that hurts me. As long as you love me in return. All of those things. The Word tells us that danger, heights, depths, nothing in the world will separate us from God's love. And that we know His love's in us if we love one another. And yet we let everything in the world separate us from loving one another. You get mad at me, and how long do you withhold love before you go ahead and have punished me enough to relinquish your love? You know, spouses do that really well. You know, you're mad at somebody, so you don't talk to them for a day. That's how guys punish their wives. We won't go into how wives punish their husbands. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You know, love is mentioned 551 times in the Bible. Not just mentioned, it's taught on over 500 times in the Bible. Isn't that something? That's more than eight times per book. Some of the books are one pages in the Bible. It's more than eight times per book. They say that the very center of the Bible is a statement that says God loves found in the Psalms. You can find entire Psalms like Psalm 139, 137, all these Psalms that every statement is followed by His love endures forever. This is all for a purpose. It's for a point. And it's for you to be filled with something. And it's not a warm, fuzzy emotion. When we think of love, if nothing else, I hope you don't have a warm, fuzzy emotion only after this. It's an action. It's a devotion. It's a God-like devotion towards doing God's purposes. We're going to close... Um, back in Galatians. I want to read that to you one more time and then we're going to close. And it's Galatians 5. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Tomorrow, as the entire world goes out and does something loving towards somebody that loves them, that is a beautiful, wonderful ideal, but we're called to something much, much higher than that. Even the world does that. They love those that love them. We're called 
to love those that don't love us. That's the only thing that uh, gets us any credit in our column, according to Luke 6. If you want to show that you grasp how wide, how deep, how long, how high God's love is, the best way that you can show God that you do that is by expressing His love towards other people. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's the goal of the expression of our faith. That's to perform out there what you've practiced in here. When you love a brother, you can think of that as practice. That's practice. So that when you get to the game, that's the lost guy in Starbucks, you show love. And you rep it in here. You know, just like you would in practice. You do the same play 46 times so that when it comes time to the game, it's a second nature. Do you think that Corey Timboom spit that out of her mouth and it was the first time she had ever thought of loving the unlovable? She had practiced this so many times that even when every fiber of her being screamed no, out of her mouth came yes. That's what Christians do. That's how you can be standing there and somebody throwing rocks at you and you say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because you had lived a life of love up to that point. So it's what came natural. Now, I'm standing before you unperfected. It's something that I'm aspiring to and I'm asking you to join me in that. The other principle that I want you to walk away from this from is when there are no feelings there, perform the action and the feelings will come. I don't care whether we're talking about worship, we're talking about devotion, we're talking about your spouse, whatever it is. You take command of your body first, your soul second, and everything will follow. I promise that. Y'all stand up. Let's pray. Incidentally, did you notice how many songs in worship said I could sing the Lord's love forever or referred around the Lord's love? We sing about it every week. It fills all of our readings and all of those things. How often do you think about during the week loving people that don't love you? I'll be honest, I think about y'all all week. I mean, I really do. Your faces come before me. I think about ways I can show you love. I pray for y'all. I don't think about my neighbors very much at all. And that's a failing. That's something that I need to work on. I got people right across the street. We're building a website to reach the nations, we hope. You know, excited. I was telling everybody four states are downloading messages. And I was so excited about that. I got four or five neighbors right around here that have never heard a message. And that hadn't concerned me a bit. You know, we need to get our perspectives right sometimes. God puts people in your path, even the ugly ones, for a reason. And it's not always to reshape you. It's not always to punish you. It's not always those things. Sometimes it's so that you can stand in His stead and give them something that they don't deserve but they desperately need. Love. Y'all, let's pray. Jesus.